0: Very lovely coming into the house from outside and just sensing the uh, quietness in here and the the kind of slow, steady movement of yogis and beautiful to walk through all these slow walkers on the way into this space. It's very calming to the nervous system. (laughs) So I hope that you're finding some... Ease and contentment in the midst of this endeavor of being present. I'm really grateful for your practice. I would love to know, but it's impossible to ask a hundred people how you're all doing this evening. And maybe there's some tanha arising for some Dharma or just some change of something happening, some entertainment. So I'd like to this evening kind of take us back in our imagination to the same place uh, where Akinciano took us yesterday to this uh, first teaching of the Buddha in the deer park at Sarnath near the confluence of the Ganges and the, and the Varuna River just after Asala Puja, the full moon of July, when he started to expound this first sermon. And as Akinshino said, actually, although it's all sort of neatly packaged in one version, the well-known version in the text, actually that this teaching probably unfolded over several days. And so we can stay there too for a bit longer together. It's also... It struck me that that Asala puja, that full moon of July, marks the beginning of the rainy season, and I think we got that here as well. <laughs> so we're in the right place. So this teaching, known as the Dhamma Chakasutta, the setting in wheel of the uh, setting in motion of the wheel of the Dhamma is uh, the exposition of the four noble truths, or ennobling truths sometimes referred to as the, the four um, realizations of the Noble Ones. And the first thing that it's named is the, the truth of Dukkha, of unsatisfactoriness or suffering, as Chris offered us a few different translations of that this morning. And the Buddha kind of elaborates on what is Dukkha. And he rather than kind of giving it a definition, he gives examples of it. So he says, Dukkha is birth, aging, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair. Association with the disliked. Separation from the liked. And not getting what one wants or wishes for. (coughs) And yesterday we added also getting what one wishes for. (laughs) And then he summarizes all these all these examples as he says in brief, these these can be summed up as the Panch Upadana Kanda, the five kandas subject to grasping or clinging, and so that's what I want to talk about tonight, this business of the five Upadana Kandas. So this word Upadana, which we translate as uh clinging or grasping um it comes from the word that is used to describe the way that fire was thought to cling to fuel when it combusts that actually fire was thought to be something that got bound up in the in the fuel that sustains it and then also the word for unbinding comes from the unbinding this um the extinction of the flame, the nibbana is the unbinding of the fuel from its the, the fire from its fuel. But it, it's really this the sense of, of something clinging or adhering to something else. And so just as like with combusting fuel, it's it's a, there's a kind of chain reaction that this is pointing to. And Tanha that I spoke about last night, the first, is part of this chain reaction. It's the response to Vedana, to the feeling tone, the experience of pleasantness or unpleasantness that Chris talked about this morning. And then, so from Vedana gives rise to Tanha, and then Tanha, this thirsting, gives rise to clinging or grasping, to Upadana. And Tanha is described in this same teaching as um, accompanied by delight and lust, delighting in this thing now in that thing tatra tatra abhinandini which sort of it's like something jumping around from one thing to another and it's also it's also called pono barvika which means pono is like something again and again and bhavika is bhava is becoming and so it's something that gives a rise, gives rise to repeated becoming to renewal of being so, so Tanha kind of, you know, keeps this whole process going, this flow from um, tanha, Vedana, Tanha, Upadana, clinging, and then becoming, becoming again and again. And the root problem, as Akinciano said last night, is not so much the Tanha itself. The, the real The root of the problem is... Our ignorance, the lack of understanding around this process of Tanha, the, the, our sense that the way out of Tanha is more Tanha, that staying on this treadmill can somehow free us. And so we have that really kind of intense image of the leper. Yeah. And yet it doesn't mean, you know, again, there, there, are, there are skillful uses of Tanha. This is really talking about the indiscriminate. Uh, gratification of tanha rather than the skillful harnessing of it. So we have that classic image that you may know from the Tibetan uh, images of the wheel of life, of the cock, the snake and the pig endlessly chasing each other around at the center of the wheel, spinning the wheel of samsara. So these Five Upadana Khandas. These five Khandas subject to clinging. This is where this is where that tanha that first takes hold. And there's three types of tanha. The tanha for um, sense pleasure, or for for sense objects. It's called karma tanha. And also tanha that is for the process of becoming, getting or becoming. And vibhava tanha, the, the desire to unbecome or to not become, or to get rid of, to kind of remove oneself from the picture. And so I'm not going to really talk so much about those three forms of tanha, but just to say these are, you, can, you will sense as we, as we look at these khandhas how um, each of these man- can manifest in relation to them. So that was upadana. And then kanda is a word, Pali word that means heap, or just kind of a heap of stuff. Um, but in a way, it, it's, I, I prefer as a translation of it, um, processes. Because again, you know, we keep with our kind of endless message. That, but I think it's so helpful is to recognize that all these things that we're talking about are processes. So to think of them as five clung-to processes in experience, or five processes that we grasp at, um, sometimes or as streams of experience, kind of currents in our experience. And we grasp at them for our gratification, as in the sense of karma tanha, this desire for sensory um, gratification, or, in the case of Vibhava Tanha and Bhava Tanha, for feeding or curating the sense of me, what I am and what I'm not. And we do it through grasping at one or more of these five khandhas. And the Buddha actually said that the five khandas describe the totality of our experience, that everything that uh, we experience as living beings falls into one of these five kandas and so these kandas are form material form feeling vedana that we spoke about this morning perception sanya this complicated word sankara which Uh, Chris used the word fabricate this morning the way that we fabricate experience so fabrications or mental processes really sort of all the things of a higher level of complexity above perception and feeling and then the fifth kanda is consciousness itself and so rupa form encompasses the whole of the physical world and Vedana, feeling tone, perception, and consciousness are kind of how we know this physical world. And they all arise simultaneously together. In a moment of consciousness, there's perception and there's a feeling tone that accompanies it. And then the sankharas, or those fabrications, mental formations are kind of what we make out of that information, what we make out of that raw data, what we do with it what we do with what we know or how we relate to it. So it's this whole world of thought, of volition, of intention, of impulse. And each of these khandhas or streams of experience is, a, is a, used by the Buddha as an umbrella term for all possible instances of its arising. So past, present, future subtle or gross, near or far, internal or external. These are all encompassed under these five streams of experience. So in that sense, the totality of our experience is contained within them. And so you might be curious if you've also heard, and I'm not not sure whether we've explicitly mentioned that yet this week, but There's also a way that the Buddha spoke about the all as being describable through the six sense bases, through the experience of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and mental objects, that, again, everything we experience could be mapped in that way. And so the question arises, how do these two maps lay on top of one another? So you could say, you know... Um, maybe uh, um, one way of looking at it is that the, the five physical senses, bodily senses, um, come under the aggregate of form. The, the, so aggregate, so is another word for kanda, come under the candor of form. And everything else, um, feeling, tone, perception, um, sankharas and consciousness come under the sixth uh, sense, sense base of the mind. But I wouldn't worry too much about that. I mean, what's more interesting is that in a, in an actual moment of experience, they're all functioning. So, just for example, now as you as you listen to my voice, as you're hearing my voice, the physical fact that there's a vibration that's being produced in my in my larynx and amplified over the room and travelling on the airwaves and then resonating with your eardrum. This is the this is the uh, activity of rupa, of form. And I assume that there's an accompanying Vedana for you, which might be pleasant or unpleasant or somewhere in between. And a perception that recognizes it as my voice, or at least as a female voice in English, probably. Probably. And then uh, sankhara, fabrication or a mental formation, that is your response to that. So the way that your mind is contextualizing that data, making understanding what's happening, and probably forming a response as well. Yeah. And then there's a, a knowing of all of this arising, without which you wouldn't be having the experience at all, and that's consciousness. You might also notice how we tend to find and position ourselves ourselves within the middle of that experience. So you're hearing and seeing now, and a sense of your body sitting on the chair or the, the mat or the cushion, it kind of tells you where you are. You know, I'm here. I'm here in this room listening. And then the feeling tone that you're having will kind of be giving you information or you'll be reading that as information about how you are you know happy or not enjoying or not suffering or not (laughs) and then there's a perception of me uh, i'm a yogi listening to a dharma talk and whatever other perceptions you have around there too and then a a story, a, a kind of compl- complex fabrication. On top of that, why I'm doing this, the kind of backstory, because I'm interested in the Dharma, because I'm a, I'm here, and this is what I have to do at this time, you know, because I want some entertainment, or because my mind wants some understanding or some clarity, and I'm hoping that that might emerge from my listening. So. All these different motivations or intentions that we might have, and they might be multiple layers of them that we carry about being here. And then consciousness, this sense that it's it's me knowing all of this. It's me who's conscious of sitting, breathing, hearing, listening, understanding, responding. Uh, So this is the sense of self kind of taking up residence with this experience of consciousness. And so these, these five streams they become the domain of uh, the three types of Tanha of thirsting for experience, for becoming, and for non becoming. And as I said, you know, even as you, as you listen to this, as, you, as you're with this experience of hearing, probably it's evident that these things are. Processes that they're verbs, Um, and that's why this this translation as streams, I think, is better than heaps, or as I, I defaulted to the more traditional, often used translation of them as aggregates, but it just means things, bunches of bundles of stuff. And they're all in, in flux, and they're in flux at different paces in a way, because it seems like well it seems like they're happening at different speeds, like the body seems a lot more solid, doesn't it, than the thoughts that flicker through it. But they are all things in process. And in this first teaching on the, on the banks of the river in the deer park at Sarnath, the Buddha talks about the processes of clinging that arise through Tanha and the process of unbinding in the Four Noble Truths. And it said that as they were listening to that, there arose in the mind of one of the the five listeners in the Venerable Kondanya, the dustless, stainless eye of the Dharma. And he, he saw clearly, he understood that whatever is of the nature to arise, is of the nature to dissolve again and this was the awakening of his dharma eye but there was still some clinging there so he realized the first the first stage of stream entry but the buddha stayed there and you know maybe if maybe he took a few days on that one and then and then he offered the second teaching and when he offered his second teaching which is a discourse on the these five candors, the all five of those monks realized complete liberation. So this is your chance. <laughs> don't don't fluff it. <laughs> so and again, in relation in this second teaching, you know the root problem is not so much. Uh, the, the root of the problem is once again a problem of ignorance you know the problem was not tanha per se the problem is the, the misunderstanding behind it and in relation to these five khandas, the mistaken belief that these processes are in our ownership and control or are who we are and that's why we grasp and cling to them And so dukkha, you could say, is a form of rope burn. You know, it's what happens when we try to grasp onto something that is in constant motion and ungraspable. We suffer rope burn. So let me just um, elaborate a bit more on these these five khandas. So material form, the first one. So, it is whatever internally or externally is composed of the four great elements of earth, water, fire, and wind or air, which is really the way that in those days they described all material substance. And the English word form is interesting because it actually implies something that forms itself and deforms itself. And this is actually what matter does, you know, it comes together in certain patterns and uh, um, what's the word compounds or compounded things and it unforms itself just as these bodies do and the way that we identify with material form of course is identification with this body you know we think of this body as who I am or as I me or mine and we live our lives in a constant process of D- identification and disidentification with it. And it's kind of inconsistent. So, for example, you know, if I ask you how old you are, you would probably be able to give me a number, unless you've really uh, emptied your mind in the meditative <laughs> process. And what would you be saying in that? It's like, in that there's an implicit identification with. You know, I am this body that's been around on this planet for this number of years. And we we kind of relate to the body often in that way. So this is one way that we, we identify, we take a position in relation to the experience of body or material form. But then I could ask you something like, what color are your eyes? And you'd say blue or brown or black or whatever... And there you're actually taking a different position. You're now the owner of the body. If I ask you how you are, quite often we do that and the implicit question and answer is about the status of our health and then we start identifying with the condition of the body. So there there are different ways that we kind of shape-shift and position ourselves in relation to this experience of materiality here. And it's not to say that this, this holding and vi- t- taking up of an identity doesn't have its purpose. I mean, I, I like to be able to tell you when you're treading on my toes. You know. <laughs> to know where another body stops and ours begins is kind of useful. But these, yeah. are, these are conventions of speech and they're temporary perceptions that are not description of some ultimate reality but we tend to fall into behaving as if they describe some ultimate reality. Because which bit of the body is really me? It's changing all the time. And I, I can't remember now what, at one stage, I, th- I think this is now wrong, but at one stage I used to, my understanding was that every seven years all the cells in our body replaced, us, replaced themselves. So that's kind of strange to think. There's nothing here that was here ten years ago. Yeah. All there really is, or we can really point to in our experience, is the the sense of a physical sensation being known, arising, passing away. Or a a symphony, or somebody said an aquarium of um, physical sensations. As William James said, when I look for myself, all I can find is a tickle at the back of my throat. And yet we... We build an identity around the condition of the body, its age, its health, its appearance, and, and we kind of can get dis- surprised or disturbed when the body changes. Yeah. And this process of, of grasping, of identification with the body, is a, it's a process of contraction and limitation. You can notice how the more strongly we identify with it the more that contraction and limitation increases the more worry and anxiety there is and there are whole industries that are built around this Mm -hmm. aren't there that kind of manipulate us through this form of anxiety and yet this body is uncontrollable and perpetually uncertain this is another um Nuance to the meaning of the word anicca that we usually translate as impermanent is also uh, unstable or uncertain. It's not really definable. And so, this is what the Buddha said in this second teaching about form. He said, Bhikkhus, form is not self. Were form self? then this form would not lead to affliction. And one could have it of form, let my form be thus, let my form be not thus. And since form is not self, so it leads to affliction, and no one can have it of form, let my form be thus, let my form be not thus. Because how do you conceive it? Is form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir. Now, is what is impermanent painful or pleasant? Painful, venerable sir. Now, is what is impermanent, what is painful since subject to change, fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this is I, this is myself. No, venerable sir. So bhikkhus, any kind of form whatever, whether past, future, future, or presently arisen, whether gross or subtle, whether in oneself or external, whether inferior or superior, far or near, must with right understanding how it is be regarded thus. This is not mine. This is not I. This is not myself. So this isn't as is sometimes kind of taken to be an ontological statement that there is no self. But it's a, a perception of not-self to be cultivated in the service of non-clinging, which is what this this discourse is, is named, the lakana Sutta, the discourse on the characteristic of not-self. And it's really an invitation to um, practice a certain way of Um, questioning and perceiving our experience. And the Buddha actually, not in this discourse but elsewhere, gives some useful similes that Chris touched into this morning about um, ways that we can perceive the experience of body. He said that that the body or form is like foam. And I was just actually prior to this, I was just teaching a retreat on the coast in California along a stretch of where there's beach with very dark sand and spent quite a lot of time watching the surf coming onto the beach and how these waves would break onto the beach and there would be a a huge pattern of white foam where the wave had broken and then a few seconds later it would just completely dissolve into the sand and there was nothing left and this is this is the way that the body is. It seems that it persists for longer than that in our experience, but ultimately <laughs> this is what's happening to it. All material form is just coming together and dissolving and so this this way of perceiving it's not an injunction to stop caring for this body because this body is our temporary responsibility, you know and there's lots of stuff in the teachings about um, appropriate ways to tend to and care for this body. But there's this majima patipada, as Akinshino said yesterday, this middle approach to be followed. That we tend to this body, we look after it appropriately, but there's nothing here ultimately to be identified with, to take refuge in. For me, perceiving the body in terms of the the four elements of earth, water, fire and air can be very healing of the natural illusion that we should somehow be more in control of the processes of the body. And so is, as we've been practicing, feeling the body as sensation arising and passing, rather than experiencing it through the lenses of concept. We might be noticing how liberating it can be to start to free ourselves up from that. So the second, the second aggregate, the second kanda, is vedana. And I'll, I won't say so much about that because Chris really gave us a beautiful exposition this morning about vedana, feeling tone, sense of pleasant and unpleasant and in-between but we we do tend to create a strong sense of self around the pleasantness or unpleasantness of experience because this is the dimension of the experience that we react to. My pleasant feelings need perpetuating and I have to do something about my unpleasant feelings. And actually, when wisdom isn't operating, there's a life is all, my life actually becomes a kind of ricocheting between uh, vedana, like this, this dancing like puppets on the strings of our impulses. Have you noticed any of this today? <laughs> Have you found yourself ricocheting at all? You know. Uh, this becomes so much of the project about of me is about maximising my my pleasant experience and minimising my unpleasant experience. And really just like form, we can't control this. You know, vedana arise with the moment of contact. They're already conditioned by what's gone before. by our previous experiences, our previous contacts. But our response to Vedana, we, can't, we, we do have some, some choice over. And so our way of responding to the Vedana that are arising and our way of placing our attention can condition the future Vedana. But the ones that are already here are totally outside of our control. Yeah. So again, there's no stable ground here for a sense of me to reside. And when we do identify with them, the more personally we take them, the more we build ourself in reaction to them, the more stress and dukkha there is. And so again, we're invited to practice this perception of the not-self nature of vedanā. Or to use the other simile to, to see Vedana, to see them arising and passing like bubbles. They just fizz and they burst and they go on. And that actually, the more attention we pay to them, the more we notice how really fleeting they can be. Sometimes they don't feel like that, you know, when we're really in lockdown around some unpleasant experience, it feels very solid and persistent. But the more mindfulness we can bring to the more, the more of our experience, the more that we notice this transitory nature. So the third kanda is sanya. And uh, for that, I have a little demonstration activity. <laughs> to ask you about the size of this book... Is this book here a big or small? <laughs> Let's see what the mind goes to immediately. Okay. <clears throat> now what? <laughs> It's a really basic example, but you see how quickly the mind will form a perception. This is big. This is small. This is this was big. Now it's gone small. You know, <laughs> and our perceptions are just like this. They're kind of um, stacked up on one another. Every perception is leaning on something else. Yeah? This morning in in one of the groups, we had quite an interesting conversation about the perception of of speed and distance and movement and actually in the walking meditation, what's moving and what's still. What's moving towards what? And uh, I was sharing that I just recently got interested to uh, find out how fast that we're actually moving as we rotate with the planet. And do, Mm. do you realize that as we sit here, we're all whizzing around at five miles per second. <laughs> you know, but we don't, we don't perceive that because luckily the atmosphere is coming with us. <laughs> I hope it doesn't stop. You know? uh, so perception is comparative and it's also, and it's based on our past data, recognizing something as something. So yesterday I was out, uh, you know, in the in the road nearby, and I heard the lawnmower. And then I realised that the lawnmower was actually the chap in his hang glider. That has a kind. Of, I don't know if some of you have noticed that he has a very noisy hang glider that flies overhead. And uh, I th- I was thought it was the lawnmower, and then I discovered it was the the hang glider. And there is of course the classic example of seeing a rope lying on the a snake lying on the ground and having that kind of one response and then realising that actually it's just a rope and the response completely changes. All conditioned by perception. Yeah. And I and me are just perceptions. My name is a perception. I don't know if you've ever changed your name. Yeah. Or perhaps different people in your life call you by different names. And which one is the real you? Yeah. You might notice yourself that you, we constellate differently according to the different situations we find ourselves in, the different names that we're called in response to different perceptions. Um, mine is also a perception, an interesting perception. I was um, once working with a yogi who was doing a a retreat from home who happened to be living near a retreat center and coming and going to practice and just noticed that how uh, when he went home, it was like everything had this kind of whiff of me about it. The bar of soap, the toothpaste tube, everything kind of had this me quality to it. And in the retreat center, that wasn't there. And that was a, it was a noticeable difference of experience for him from the experience of being in a retreat centre and doing this practice at home. And I always remember how, as a child, like the, the perception of my mother's car was almost like my mother's car was an extension of her body. <laughs> but my, the mother The motherness really attached to that car as well as to the person. Mm-hmm. Or the mats and the zafus in the room. Have you noticed how different my mat and zafu seem to the empty ones nearby or to other people's what what would happen if you suddenly find somebody on your on your seat or the walking paths outside you know there's a there's a little kind of strip of worn down grass and a little worn patch at either end of it and the delivery driver arriving here would probably not even notice it as a walking path but yogis might notice oh that's just immediately the mind with a walking path (laughs) and then there's my walking path (laughs) and just noticing what arises when we see somebody on our walking path and we did kind of set you up for that Mm -hmm. a little bit by the encouragement to kind of try walking in the same place rather than going shopping around for your favourite place and I I would say you know you can lighten up about that and it's okay to it's okay to share and switch walking paths and so on but you just notice how we get attached to these things you know so perception arises in the moment of contact and we can't choose or dictate them because the brain is kind of wired to take shortcuts it's in, in evolved to do that but we can make them more conscious and we can also um, really make an effort to notice skillful, unskillful or harmful perceptions uh, so one really important area for investigation around this is the area of implicit bias you know the way that the, um, the 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 software of our culture interacts with the natural tendencies of mind, which we could call the hardware, to kind of categorize and essentialize people and things. So by essentializing, I mean there's a tendency that's been shown to exist in the in the mind that's kind of hardwired that to see groups of things or people in terms of Um, abstract qualities that we think define them and so you know this produces things like racism and classism and sexism and including in the way that we internalise all of that this is all a facet of perception that it really um, is important to become aware of and then it can be very interesting also with coming, coming off retreat and uh, seeing how some of our perceptions of one another just get shown up as that, you know somebody that we have had no contact with, no interaction with, and we have this really well formed idea of who they are or maybe what language they speak or how they speak, and then we at the end of the retreat, we realize it was just totally off off track you know so a perception is just a perception and The perception arising here of me is not me. The perception arising here of you is not who you are. It's just a perception arising in this mind and the perception that's arising in your mind of who I am. It's just a perception. And yet we think we know, we we limit ourselves and one another by that. So again, just as with the others, we can't choose it once it's happening, but we can condition the way that other perceptions arise in the future. So the image that the Buddha used for this is that perception is like a mirage. And that's actually a skillful perception to have of perception. If you see what I mean. We can make use of use of that in a skillful way. So, and as I said, the perception of not-self or the perception of impermanence, these are all ways that we can practice perceiving the world. Another perception that is encouraged to be cultivated is the perception of unloveliness in that which is, you know, really exciting our tanha or our craving. We can choose to, if we choose to focus on the lovely aspects of it, the tanha increases. If we choose to attend to the unlovely aspects of it then the tanha decreases when we focus on the not self aspects of things then that sense of identification starts to at least loosen up and to begin to fade I have to do a lot of editing on the fly here So Sankara's fabrications, this is everything that pertains to a story of me and my projects, my thoughts, intentions, emotions, impulses, constructed experience, what we make out of the building blocks of the rest of it. And again, you can notice that our story of what we're doing here, how many times has your story of what you're doing here changed in the last few days? And what does that depend on? So I know it's a challenge coming to these group practice meetings and having to give an account of yourself or what's going on, isn't it? I totally know because I've been there many times myself. It's like, which, which thread of my experience do I pull out here to characterize what's going on, you know? And what we what we choose to do just kind of depends on the story that's running at the moment. Or, you know, sometimes we just let it be spontaneous. But it's I, I know that whatever you bring to those meetings, this is just a, a, a piece of your experience. How could it be otherwise, you know? But yet we we kind of um, have this sense of this is gonna define who I am. Yeah. So when even the perceptions that are underlying these, these constructs, these fabrications, are stacked up on one another like dominoes, how could the, how could the, how could the stories that we make out of them be more solid? Yes. And again, it, it's, it's natural that our intelligence tries to make sense of the world. That's how, how wisdom operates. And we need that for understanding what Chris called the algorithms of suffering and release we need it for understanding the nature of things but the problem is when everything, all this meaning making condenses around a story of me so the Buddha said that uh, the most unhelpful thing for um, freeing the mind was inappropriate attention and this is how a practitioner attends inappropriately questioning what was I in the past was I not in the past was I in the past how was I in the past having been what what was I in the past shall I be in the future shall I not be in the future what shall I be in the future how shall I be in the future having been what what shall I be in the future or else they're inwardly perplexed about the immediate present am I am I not what am I how am I Where has this being come from? Where is it bound? So all these thoughts that just perpetuate uh, that sense, that illusion of some solid me running through the middle of this. And uh, when we do this, our sense of self becomes more and more solidified and we get more and more limited by the definitions of who we think we are. And that conditions our relationship with others and with the world around us. So that this upadana, this clinging, can also adhere not just to thoughts about ourselves, but to our views and opinions, to ditti, as they're called. And that's such a great nutriment for me, isn't it? That sense of, I'm right, I'm in control of the data here. You know, <laughs> we, we really kind of take up a home there so we we make we do we have this tendency to make a home in our stories and our views and opinions and it's very hard to leave it you know and you probably have asked yourself many times as I have why do the same thought bundles keep arising in our meditation practice especially when they have a a strong emotion attached and we get hooked because of this identification We believe that we need to fix the story or to straighten out the world or to straighten out ourselves, and sometimes in these repetitive stories, there are things that are of value to understand, that we need to understand. But some of them sometimes the most persistent ones are the ones that we've already done five or 10 or 20 years of therapy on, aren't they? <laughs> and They still come back in our meditation the whole time. And uh, Jack Cornfield says something I think is quite wise he says we 're very loyal to our suffering. Mm. <laughs> we can be too loyal to our suffering, you know because the scary thing in a way is who would we be without those stories you know if we if we put them down and again at this uh, retreat that I was just teaching in California, it was on a, on a kind of um wilderness place was mostly camping and there was a barn and in the in the rafters of the barn there were lots of swallows nesting and one of the big teachers of the whole yogi community and all of us on retreat was this nest of uh, baby swallows that was being fed by the parents and at the beginning of the fortnight that we were there they were really tiny and you would just see these five little beaks sort of opening and pointing out and squeaking away, and the parents endlessly flying in and popping stuff into their mouths. And then over the fortnight, they grew really big and chubby. They actually grew bigger than the parents, and they were honestly so chubby by the end of it, and they could no longer all fit in the nest. And they were piled one on top of each other like sardines. And I don't know how they even got their mouth to the entrance, the ones underneath. And so eventually, you know, they, they have to leave the nest. And you see them start trying to start to fly and just kind of flapping the wings and then getting a bit scared. And then, you know, and then one or two left the nest and just hopped a, a few feet onto the rafter nearby. And then they'd come back in the evening and they'd hunker down there again and mum and dad would bring more food. And, stuff. and And then there was one left behind, this sort of super chubby one who just wouldn't get out <laughs> of <to> the nest. <laughs> you know? And the brothers and sisters would the siblings would go off in the day and come back there in the evening and this one, for two or three days it just would not get itself out of the nest and it was really poignant because you could see how scary it was to actually leave, leave home in that sense and I was really thinking that's kind of like us and these identities, these stories it's like um, they're, they're where we've nested and yet actually if we want to fly we have to be willing to 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 jump, like in the the Rilke poem that says even a baby bird has to learn be willing to fall before it can learn to fly, that moment of not knowing where we hop out of the nest and: whew. Yeah, so our, our, and our stories and our ways of thinking, they're deeply conditioned by our accumulated experiences and our ancestral conditioning but also by all sorts of things, the food, the weather, the climate, the culture. So how could we possibly be in control of those either? Yeah. Yes, we're, again we're responsible for how we respond to them, for the actions that they prompt and what we do now is going to condition the future but the ones that are arising now, they're not in our control either. But what we can do is we can, as one of my friends says, we can delaminate ourselves from the story. And it's in that delaminating that there's the freedom to choose a different response. We don't have to stop them or get rid of them because they're just the aliveness of the mind expressing itself, but we can relax our grip on them. So there's this famous story of Ajahn Chah walking with a group of monks and seeing a large rock and pointing to it and saying, is the rock heavy? They go, yes, they're ox-heavy. It's only heavy if you pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> and this is what we do with our thought world, over and over. So the Buddha invited us to see this as a, um, being like a plantain tree. So a plantain tree is a ba- ba- like a banana tree that has no actual tree trunk. It's just the, the trunk is formed of leaves wrapped around one another. We might think more in terms of onions, <laughs> You know, it's like peeling off the layers of the onion. And uh, so to recognize that our mental constructs are like this. Okay, and then just a little bit on vinyana or consciousness. So this is kind of the last, the last, ple- the last thing that we cling to, the last place that we really take up a, a sense of identity we kind of want to continue our existence as the one who knows. We identify with the observer of the experience. And it's kind of natural that we do that. And again, we don't have to get rid of it, but just see it, see it happening. There's this, this sense that there's somebody inside the head directing operations. You know. But the question the Buddha asked us to look at, is there any, anyone or anything... Any consciousness that can be found independently of what's being known. So how do you know that you're conscious right now? Th- through the content of the experience that's arising. So actually the experience, he said, is, is like a it's like a moment to moment flow of things being known. And where do we find consciousness in the middle of that? People ask, Where where is consciousness? We talk about the heart and mind and people say, Well where is the mind? Oh, that's a tricky one. You know. But where is consciousness? And this is this is the ultimate mystery. Yeah. But we can we know it through its contents. And sometimes we can have the sense of this being a momentary arising moments of experience being known and sometimes maybe this sense in another way of perceiving it is as a field of awareness in which things are rising and passing but even the sense of me is arising and passing in that field the actual knowing itself is empty of anything that i can identify with And what consciousness does is it it just reveals the dance of experience. And the Buddha said this is like a conjurer standing at the crossroads doing magic tricks. And I think that's a good analogy because it's like we can see the tricks, we can see the performance, but we don't know how it's done. And maybe we don't need to. This is the ultimate mystery of life. But when I do try to locate myself in that, again, there's a sense of, Contraction and limitation. So the Buddha said, even here, there's nothing to be clung to as I, me, or mine. So he says, just as with form, feeling, perception, sankharas, and consciousness are all not in our control and there's nowhere that a sense of self can reliably be found or take up residence. And he says, when this is seen and understood, the enchantment or the passion for form, feeling, perception, sankharas and consciousness fades away. And the five ascetics had the benefit of having practiced with the Buddha for a long time and listening to him. And for them it happened on the spot. But for most of us, it's a it's a gradual process. Yeah. Yeah. But every t- every moment of seeing through that illusion of identification, or the pro- or just stepping back from that process of identification, the sense of self gets a little bit lighter. And I know many of you have sensed that, have experienced that in your practice, and speak about that happening in the practice that we become. A little lighter, a little more flexible, a little less burdened, and a little less free, a little freer. So, Tanissaro Th- who says something like that he says that undoing clinging is a kind of weaning process. There's a passage that I was going to read, but I won't read it because it takes too long. The Buddha are, is discussing with somebody why is it that we get so adhe- adhered to these things, and he says the reason is is because there's actually a certain pleasure that arises in the identification. You know, if it were exclusively unpleasant, we wouldn't cling to any of this, mm. but because it's it it's sometimes pleasant, we get infatuated with these five streams of experience and we cling on to them. But the fact that they're also unpleasant and unreliable, that is where the dispassion and the disenchantment come in. And that's why eventually we get tired of being on this constant treadmill of trying to find security and gratification there and why the mind will back away and start to drop them. We'll read one short passage. So, this is from the um, Majjhima Nikaya. And the Buddha talking to the monks. What do you think, monks? If a person were to gather or to burn or to do as he likes with the grass, twigs, branches, and leaves here in Jetta's Grove. Would the thought occur to you, it's us that this person is gathering, burning, or doing with as he likes? No, Lord. Why is that? Because those things are not ourself, nor do they belong to ourself. Even so, monks, whatever isn't yours, let go of it. Your letting go of it will be for your long-term welfare and happiness. And what isn't yours? Form isn't yours. Feeling isn't yours. Perception isn't yours. Fabrication isn't yours. Consciousness isn't yours. Let go of it. Your letting go of it will be for your long-term welfare and happiness. And I think sometimes we can be afraid. You know, what will be left if I let go completely? And perhaps the only difference is that uh, awakened ones, there's these, still these five processes happening, but there are these five processes happening without the clinging and without the grasping, and therefore without the suffering. There's no more rope burn. There's just Freedom. Awakeness and responsiveness. So just one, one more poem to end. And this is from the um, a translation of the verses of the elder nuns, the early nuns, translated by Matty Weingast. who's spent much time here. And this is from... It's called Anyatara, which is anonymous, so we don't know the name of the nun who wrote this. I was young when I left home, and for years I rambled around, my practice sitting, walking, and hoping. At first, everything was new. I didn't notice my skin drying up or my hair turning grey. Then one morning there I was, an old woman. Where had I gotten in all those years on the path? That night I slept out in a field and it rained. It felt like I belonged there, miserable and alone in the mud. In the morning I went to the nearest monastery and threw myself down. A nun took me in and taught me. This body, this mind, this world—where they come from, where they go, what they are, what they are not. That night, I went to sit out in the field, and it rained. I—it felt like I belonged there. Every drop of water, telling me I was home. Don't worry, my sisters. When the road reaches its end, you'll know it. So let's just sit for a minute and let the words dissolve. Thank you for your kind attention we have some time for walking now and do please if you can come back for the chanting together to end the evening thank you